study uh, Thessalonians and Revelation this morning as we conclude our survey of the Bible. We'll uh, start up next week into church history, which I think will be an exciting study for us. So Thessalonians and Revelation this morning. Towards the beginning of His ministry, the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray. And the prayer that He gave them, often called the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer, was, as you see on your handout there, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In verse 10, He begins by saying, Your kingdom come. One of the prayers that Jesus makes or gives as an example for us to make is that His kingdom, God's kingdom, would come on this earth. And uh, for the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the enemies of the church, those who are opposed to its existence. And today, we want to ask the question raised in the Lord's Prayer, what happens in this kingdom? What, what is this kingdom all about? What is this kingdom that Jesus will rule over? Does it? Does this conflict that you feel in the Christian life, does it ever end? Will the King ever come? Will God ever set up His kingdom on this earth through Jesus Christ? And if so, then how should we be living until then? And so to answer these questions, Paul helps us in Thessalonians and John in Revelation how we should live uh, until the time in which Christ sets up this kingdom for which we should be praying. So let's begin with prayer, and then we'll ask uh, God's help as we look at these three books of the New Testament. Father, we are uh, so thankful for the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the unity that we can have around Your Word. We're thankful that we can meet and and um, w- without opposition and proclaim Your name and um, speak what Your Word says without fear of persecution, physical persecution for sure, and, um, and we can honor Your name. And we're thankful for that. We're thankful for uh, this group of people who have come to learn from Your Word, and we pray that You'd help us to um, respond rightly to it. pray that You would help us to contribute by participating and perhaps offering... Um, further uh, information or clarification, may you be honored as we seek to understand and look into your word today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, when we consider the circumstances surrounding the creation of the church in Thessalonica, it's not surprising that these letters uh, revolve around the second coming of Christ. Paul made a brief stay in Thessalonica while heading west towards Athens on his second missionary journey. And the city was a major city in the east-west trade between Rome and Palestine, which is present-day Greece. Thessalonica is in present-day Greece. Paul visited this city on his second missionary journey on his way to Athens after having left Philippi. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 17. But he was only there for a few weeks because of opposition. And he had to leave. Um, There was some mob violence there, and so he had to leave the city. 
But despite his early departure, the gospel flourished and grew in this city. And Paul was encouraged to hear good reports about this congregation, as you see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Um, however, the, the church there still needed further teaching. That's why Paul writes these two letters. Because there were some problems about specifically moral purity um, and we'll talk about what that means here in just a second. It's related to the way that they work. And also with regard to some confusion that was going on about the second coming, second coming they, they weren't exactly sure what happened to people who died. And so Paul had to make clarification. Um, they knew that some people from among their number had died and they were wondering what happened to them. It sounds as if they're going to miss out on this great and glorious kingdom. And so Paul writes these two letters to help uh, clarify these issues and to challenge them with regard to their moral purity. So, in about 51 A.D., from the city of Corinth, Paul wrote to this young church these two letters. They're known as First and Second Thessalonians. Probably just a few months apart that he wrote these letters, and his purpose is to instruct them in matters that he had not been able to... to um, to get to while he was there, especially with regard to eschatology, which is just a fancy word for the last things or the last times. Paul wanted to encourage these believers that whether they lived or they died, that they would remain in their faith and that, that um, they should be expecting the coming of Christ, which would be soon. And uh, this would help put their trials in perspective. So, So Paul focuses on their faith, hope, and love. And we'll see this in both First and Second Thessalonians. In fact, if you look on the back of your handout, you can see that Paul begins both of these letters by talking about faith, hope, and love. Chapter 1 of First Thessalonians, Paul prays for their faith, hope, and love. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul gives thanks for their faith, hope, and love. And then he goes on to instruction. So that seems to be one of the main uh, themes as well. All right, so this is probably one of the earliest, the one of uh, probably two of Paul's earliest epistles. This, these were probably written around 52 A.D. and um, shortly after he had had been there. With regard to the major themes, I said one of the major themes is the second coming. Um, at the heart of both of these letters is Paul's instruction and teaching concerning the second coming of our Lord. There seem to be several misunderstandings floating around among the Thessalonian churches. First, some were concerned about those Christians who had already died. Would they be left out of the kingdom? Would they be at a disadvantage in comparison to those still alive? Is it better to, to, to stay alive longer until Christ actually returns? Or even worse, did they simply pass into oblivion and, and uh, never to be heard from again? No hope of future at all. But this wasn't the only misunderstanding with regard to the, the, the end times. Others were confused about times and dates. When would Christ return? How would they know? Would it be possible to miss it? I mean, are they prepared for it? And so, and so Paul helps to answer those questions as well. And finally, the third misunderstanding uh, is that others seemed... To, to think that Christ had already returned 
or that the kingdom was already there in its fullness. Paul says, no, you'll, you'll, uh, you'll know. You'll know when it comes. Um, so he, he wanted to make sure that they knew that, that they hadn't missed it. So to all of this, Paul responds with clear teaching about the last days. First of all, the first misunderstanding was with regard to the Christians who had died. These loved ones who had died. Turn to chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. Here Paul addresses what he terms their ignorance. Or uh, he calls them uninformed in verse 13. He calls uh, it their ignorance, reminding them that Christ's resurrection meant hope in the face of death, not despair. And that when Christ comes, the dead in Christ are far from being left out of this future hope. They actually are the first fruits of that hope. They actually rise first. Look at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, in other words, dead, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So in this short passage here, Paul just helps to to show them that those who are dead will actually precede those who are alive. He says that two times. Um, Verse 15, he says, you who are alive will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And then he gives the order at the end of verse 16, the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive. So two times he explains to them that the dead still have hope or they've actually their, their faith actually has become sight. So you don't have to fear for them. Secondly, the second misunderstanding that they had was with regard to times and dates. When would Christ return? And so, to those people who are worried about times and dates, he reminds them um, that they don't have to be worried about that. For the day of the Lord will come unexpectedly. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. The day of the Lord, in other words, the end times, will come unexpectedly. Now, as to the times and epochs, brethren, okay, it's almost as if they ask the question, Paul, what about the times and, and the dates of the last times? It sounds like Paul's actually addressing that answer right here. You have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with a woman with child and they will not escape. So he goes on to say uh, in this chapter that it won't take them by surprise because they don't know the exact time and Um, that they should live each day prepared and ready, alert, expecting the Lord's coming, but they should not fear that they would miss it. Look at verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we we uh, we will live together with Him. 
So, with regard to the Christians who have died, don't fear for them. Don't 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 uh, be worried about them. They're going to be fine. They're going to be raised to to be joined with their bo- their bodies will be raised to be joined with their spirits. And then, with regard to the times and dates, don't fear. Be ready, certainly, but but don't fear about missing it. Um, Christ will come like a thief in the night. Finally, to those who thought the second coming had already happened, um, Paul has a pretty strong warning in Second Thessalonians chapter one. They thought that the second coming had already come, so they could live. Uh, they could. They could basically shed their jobs, um, be idle, do nothing. But Paul says, listen, the end times are coming, but that doesn't mean you just relieve yourself of all your responsibilities. Christ's return would be preceded and, and, and by an unprecedented rebellion against God led by the Antichrist himself who sets himself up to be worshipped in the place of God as the, the epitome of idols. And this is really the theme of Second Thessalonians 2. But but after that time, Christ would return and He would overthrow and defeat this Antichrist and judge all those who disobeyed. So, so they should not be idle. Look at chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians, verse 7. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed believed for our testimony to you was believed. What Paul's saying here is as far from being idle, Christians are to be working so that the gospel would not be slandered. Now, he's not just talking about Christian service. Paul would say later that if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. I think it's important that we note the practical teaching of the second coming. Sometimes what we, what we come to when we're studying through the second coming is we come up with all these debates. Okay, I've seen a lot of these, if not um, the majority of them, uh, the debates that come about as a result of the second coming. Okay, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, um, pre-mill, ah-mill. Um, there, there's all these different arguments for all these things, but that's not the primary point for which Paul is writing. He's not trying to to get you to, and I'm not trying to argue against any of those uh, things that, that you uh, follow, but what I'm saying is, the practical outworking of knowing about the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is that we should be working. This topic um, invites a lot of speculation. You've seen this over the past decade with the Left Behind series and with um, a fascination of the identity of the Antichrist, Okay, trying to say, well, if Christ could come at any time, then 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 Satan has to always have ready an Antichrist. So let's go back through history of the, since the beginning of the church and find out who, was, who would have been the Antichrist if Christ came at that time. And so we go through all these people. Who would have been the world ruler? Who would have brought peace to the whole world? We look now and say, who could that be? But that's not what Paul is getting at. 
Okay, that, those are the, not the, necessarily the things we are s- supposed to be fixing our attention on. When it comes to our thinking of the second coming, the certainty of, our, uh, of His return should, number one, give us hope in the face of death. This is what Paul is saying. The certainty of Christ's return should give us hope in the face of death so that we don't have to fear death. We know that Christ will return and make all things right. Secondly, it should motivate us to live holy and godly lives so that we're prepared and ready for His return. And then thirdly, it should give us a certainty about the future that allows us to, to, to um, avoid apathy in life and not be fearful over the next. So if we have a certainty of the future, then, then we should be uh, working hard to, to advance the work of Christ as long as we have life. This leads to the second theme that we want to briefly notice in these letters, and that is Paul's concern for the faith, hope, and love of the Thessalonians. It serves really as a summary of of what Paul thinks about the gospel, that it is made up of faith, hope, and love. And so that's why he prays for their faith, hope, and love in, in 1 Thessalonians, and he thanks God for their faith, hope, and love in 2 Thessalonians. What that works out to be is that it's, it works out to be brothers who genuinely love, or brothers and sisters in Christ, who genuinely love, genuinely love one another. Whether that means 1 Thessalonians 4, sexual purity, or avoiding idleness, as we've already talked about with regard to work, or respecting overseers in the church, 1 Thessalonians 5. We could go on and on how this plays itself out. But how is it that the Thessalonians could give themselves in this way? I mean, how could they risk themselves in, in lives of love? Well, Paul's saying the reason that you can do these things, the reason that you can work hard, the reason that you can, can, uh, can be pure morally, and the reason that you can, can um, respect your overseers is because of your faith, because of the gospel, recognizing that Christ has forgiven you of your sin, the sin that you, were, you deserved, you and I deserved to bear ourselves But because of that hope that we have in Christ, um, we know that Christ will rescue us from that future judgment. That's what we just read in 2 Thessalonians. That Christ will spare us from that judgment. And as a result, believers should be willing to give themselves away. Why should we love someone Specifically, Paul's talking about in the church. So why should we love other believers in the church? Particularly believers who are unlovely? Because Christ did the same for us. Christ loved us. Christ loved me who was unlovely. And still is. And that's why we can do it over and over again to people who are not our first choice of people to to um, to love. Okay. All right. So the result of knowing our uh, knowing that Christ will come is um, should lead us to action, and uh, that should be worked out in the gospel as it's lived out in our church in our lives. 
And that's uh, where Paul's going with First and Second Thessalonians. The result of the second coming, the result of knowing that Christ will return, is that we should live holy lives. Any questions on the letters to Thessalonians or comments? Yes, Bill. Right. I think, I mean, with regard to the theology here, the timeline of the last times, I'm not saying that those things are unimportant. Um, they are. They seem to be clear from Thessalonians, Revelation, even in the the, the prophets as well, that the the the, um, the schedule is the schedule. The ten times, the very next thing to happen is the return of our Lord. Well, probably a better way to. Re- call that as the rapture because the actual return of our Lord is not till the kingdom when He actually comes to the earth. There, He just meets us in the air, the rapture. So, the next thing is the rapture and then the seven-year tribulation. It seems to be clear from the rest of Scripture and Thessalonians. And then following the tribulation is the, the battle of Armageddon and then the 1,000-year reign of Christ as King, the kingdom, the thing that we talked about at the beginning. Your kingdom come. Let that happen. Trish? Right. Miscalculation. <laughs> a little bit of an understatement. But um, yes, that, that is true. Sometimes we get so fascinated with the dates and the times, and Paul says, just be ready. Okay, He's going to come when you don't expect it. Uh, be ready as if He's going to return today, every day. Well, Revelation is, we could call, the return of the King. And if Paul is spending time on practical concerns, um, John does as well, but primarily he's actually talking about the events as they unfold. Beginning in chapter 4 of Revelation through uh, the end of the book, you have the unfolding of the, the last times, eschatology. And so um, John helps to, to unfold that, that, uh, future, those future events for us. Well, by the time of the writing of Revelation, Apostle John is in exile, as you know, on the Isle of Patmos, around the first century, the end of the first century, about 95 A.D., A.D. 95. Um, And the gospel had been preached throughout Asia Minor, throughout that province where he had been ministering. And now 
John is told to write to these churches, these seven churches, which are probably representative of the entire area there and really representative, as we'll see this morning in the, the morning service, representative of all churches of all time. Okay, from the, from the the very first church there in Acts chapter 2 all the way until the tribulation. All of those churches really are represented in this these first couple chapters of Revelation. Um, so as a result of John's ministry and other believers who had come through there, obviously Timothy was a pastor at Ephesus. Maybe not obviously, but Timothy was a pastor at Ephesus as well. Paul had been there. Apollos and um, um, Aquila and Priscilla were also there. So there's lots of people who administered in this area. And um, as a result of their, their ministry, many people had come to believe in Christ. And they had recalled that before Jesus left, that He had promised to return and set up His kingdom. And so they were looking for this return. When would this happen? How is this all going to unfold? And as they're waiting, obviously, Jesus hadn't returned during their lifetime. And the empire became more and more wicked, the Roman Empire, that is, and Christians were being persecuted. And so as a result, people were asking questions in those churches. Questions like, does God care about us? Is God sovereign over us? Can He really do anything about our suffering? And if He can, then when will He? Because it doesn't feel as if God is is working now. With all this suffering that we're experiencing, it feels as if God is either unloving toward us or unable to help us. So, if He can... And if He will, then when will this happen? And so with regard to that context, the book of Revelation is written to encourage Christians to persevere and to hope in Christ. And the message of Revelation is that Christ will return and Christ will win. That the present world that is in opposition to this future kingdom will be judged and overthrown. Look at Revelation chapter 11 with me. Will someone read verse 15? Christ will come and Christ will win. That's the point of Revelation. Someone read that for me, 11.15. Go ahead, Mike. He will reign forever and ever. The kingdom of our Lord has become uh, the the uh, the kingdom of His Christ. Throughout Scripture, when earth hears from heaven, what is its message? It is that God is in control and that He is not frustrated by uh, by the things that are going on in this world, but rather... He's bringing all of these things that are going on in this world to a consummation, to to be played out towards His purposes. So as you are today, as you are in your struggle today, you will not always be. 
the incidents and accidents of this life, okay, put those in quotes, are, are playing directly into the hands of the potter who is shaping the clay as he seems best. As the earth is today, as the church is today, it will not always be. So we have, uh, we have a response to these questions. Christ will come and Christ will triumph. He will win. So we come to the major themes of this book. I'd like just to point our attention to two main themes. One is that God is good. And two is that God will triumph. So first of all, God is good. In the face of the trials and the sufferings that you are experiencing, you need to recognize that God is good, that He takes care of His people. Look at chapter 5, verse 9, because there's one way in which we see that God is good, there's, uh, and that is that the Lamb is the Savior. The one who died for us is the one who saved us. Chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song, 24 elders and the four living creatures, uh, that we read about in verse 8. And they said, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. The one who poured out his life for us is the one who purchased us with his blood. The one who makes access to, to God for us is the Lamb who is slain. He's the only one who can get you out of God's wrath. Get you out from underneath it. And so, we know that God is good because the Lamb is the Savior. Secondly, we know that God is good from Revelation because the Lamb watches out for His redeemed. He watches out for His redeemed. What you're going to find throughout the book of Revelation, beginning in chapter 3, verse 10, you find that the church is actually removed from this persecution, this ultimate persecution. Uh, maybe that's not a good word for it. This, this ultimate tribulation that comes upon the earth, that the church is removed for this. In fact, when you read from chapters 4 through 19, you will not find the word church mentioned. And that's because the church is removed. Chapter 3, verse 10 says that that if you persevere, he's talking to Christians of all uh, of all times that are left basically there. He's saying, listen, if you persevere, then you will be saved from the hour of testing, from this great and terrible day of the Lord as it's called in the Old Testament. You'll be saved from it. And so we see an example there of the Lord watching out for His redeemed, but it continues. Look at chapter 14. And I'll show you another example of the Lord watching out for His chosen ones. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with Him 144,000, having, having His name and the name of His Father written on their foreheads. So in other words, they're sealed for God's purposes. And I heard a voice from heaven, verse 2, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. 
These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Here we see this group of 144,000 Jews being saved, being protected. When I say saved, I probably should say protected. They have the seal on their forehead that keeps them from, from being uh, killed. And so the chosen ones are safe. Now, obviously you understand that in the, the tribulation there will be Christians or believers who actually die. People who follow Christ who actually die. So we have to understand that this safety is ultimate safety that I'm talking about. That it is final safety. That even if a person's life ends in death or ends in destruction from someone on this earth, still Christ will provide ultimate salvation for them. And so the point is that terrible things will happen even during these last days. But in the midst of this judgment, we have to understand that God is good, that He is in control. He will work all things out for His good. And so hope in the book of Revelation is found in the worst type of suffering that even believers during that time can trust in God's goodness and sovereignty knowing that He will accomplish His purpose. So, what we learn from this book is that God is good because the Lamb is the Savior and that the Lamb watches out for the redeemed. Secondly, we see that the other main theme that you find in Revelation is that God will triumph. Okay, I said Christ will come and Christ will win. God will triumph. We see this first in judgment, the certainty of God's judgment. Unlike the circumstances of the church that were going on during John's day at the end of the first century, there seems to be a progression to all these judgments, that they get worse and worse. first three years of the tribulation are bad, but the second three years are worse. They're called the great and terrible day of the Lord. And uh, it moves from seals to trumpets to bold judgments. And if you know anything about those judgments, you know that, that God's wrath gets poured out in a greater degree as it moves on. Finally, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of our Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. That is a clear statement that Mike read earlier with regard to Christ triumphing, that He will triumph for God that the present world will end. And we see that God will triumph in judgment, that the severity of His judgments are clear. It it will be obvious who these judgments are coming from. And we also recognize the righteousness of God's judgment, that even in judgment, God is completely just to do so. And the amazing thing about God is that even during this period of seven years, He still gives people time to repent. He doesn't, he doesn't make it happen overnight, just once and, and done. You're, you're out. He gives them plenty of opportunities, great signs in the heavens. People even recognize that the hailstones, the hundred-pound hailstones that come from heaven are from God, and yet they still, they still defy Him. They recognize that it comes from Him, and as a result, they... They well up with more and more anger in their heart rather than, than repentance. And uh, 
through that, I think what we see is that God is merciful even in judgment and that God is just in judgment. He gives them more than enough time to repent. But we also know that God will triumph because of the final, or, or we could say the end of the story. Turn to chapter 21. Chapter 21. And in this we see the, the promise of the new heaven and the new earth. In what location does all of human history begin? It begins in the garden. And it ends in a city at the center of which is a garden. And this new city is a place where death is replaced by life. That there will be no more death. Look at chapter 21, verse 4. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes in this new heavens and new earth. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Find out later in verses 23 through 26 that night is replaced by light. That there will be no sun or moon to provide light because the glory of God is its light. The glory of God and the Savior, I believe, is the way it's put. Um, let me find that here. Verse 23, And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. So both God the Father and God the Son provide its light. In this new heavens and new earth, verse 27, we find that corruption is replaced by purity. Nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And in this new city, the divine curse that came upon the earth is now replaced with divine blessing. Look at chapter 22, verse 1. Then He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them. And they will reign forever and ever. See that in verse 3? There will no longer be any curse. The struggle that you face now and that all humans have been facing since the sin of Adam will be reversed. And it will be replaced with beautiful blessing from God directly. And in this city, there is no longer any sea, which is in the Scriptures often a symbol of unrest and rebellion. Um, it will be a city of brilliance according to chapter 21, verses 9-21. through 21. It's, It will have an unusual place or unusual shape, I should say. It has the shape of, of a cube, which we see um, in other parts of Scripture uh, pointing to the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, where only the priest could go once a year, but he had to come with a sacrifice, and he would go to meet God there. It was where God's presence was, where the glory cloud remained, inside that Holy of Holies, inside that perfect cube. And what we find in the book of Revelation is that the new heavens and the new earth are shaped like a cube. 
you look at the, its dimensions and you'll find that the length is, is, is the same, same as the width and the height. It's shaped like a cube and, and we see that we're able to see God's face. We are able to be in His presence, which is unprecedented in history. And um, that will be the greatest joy of heaven, by the way, that, that God will be there, that we will be in joy, His perfect and beautiful presence, unhindered by any sin or corruption in us. And, um, and so we will spend our eternity worshiping our God and our Savior for what, what He has done for us. Ultimately, revelation is a vision, a revelation of the certainty of the triumph of the Almighty God, that Satan will be punished, that God is good, God does have the power. So, if we go back to those three questions that we started with, does God care? In this book of Revelation, we see that God is good. He does care for those whom He has chosen. Does God have the power? Is God sovereign? Even if He does care... Can He remove this suffering for, from us? Is there anything He can do for us or are His hands tied? We find in this book that God will triumph through Jesus Christ. And so God is sovereign. And then thirdly, when will He do this? Well, we don't know uh, when this will happen. But John um, ends the New Testament on the same note that Matthew begins with, Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus had said in Matthew chapter 6, Your kingdom come. And John says the same thing in Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus. Set up Your kingdom. Make Jerusalem the center of the earth for us. Allow the blessings to flow from, the, from Mount Zion so that we can, can be in Your presence. Not, not for our benefit, so, but so that we can be in endless praise forever worshiping You and learning more about our God and our Savior. Great book. Um, we'll talk about some more in the morning service, obviously. And um, Any questions or comments on Revelation or Thessalonians? Bill? Right. And that's what I talk to people all the 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, there have to be um, there have to be people who are alive um, before the rapture that get saved after the rapture because otherwise they would have to be born whenever. Let's say the beginning, right, right after the rapture, and then they only be seven years old at the end of it. But there are clearly people who come to Christ. Um, I think early on in the tribulation. So, so there have to be what I would say is adults who are alive before the rapture and have an opportunity to repent after the rapture. And you're right, they will not be a part of the church. They miss out on the beauty of the church and being removed from that, like Revelation 3.10, removed from that hour of testing. Now they actually have to go through the hour of testing. Many of them will be martyred, as you say. Um, and others will actually make it into the kingdom, like the 144,000. They will, they will enter in their human bodies, never having died. They, they actually escape to the, to the hills, as Jesus says. When you hear, when the, abomin- when the abomination of desolation comes upon you, which is when the Antichrist sets himself up as the idol in the temple, that's when you need to go. Don't even, it's going to be hard for those who are pregnant. You remember in, in Matthew? And, and it's, and don't even go to get your stuff. Just go. Just go. Run. And um, so that's, that's how I take it. But I don't, know why, I don't know, have an answer for why people see it that way. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, one more comment. Yep. Yep. The 144,000 good things. Yep. Or 12,000 from each tribe of Israel. Right. No, no. Gospel of the kingdom. You need to repent and 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 still follow the redeemed one, but but ultimately the reward will be not salvation and being removed from the hour of testing, but actually entering into the kingdom. Exactly. Right. think the scriptures are clear on that and I've often thought that because of the videos I watched when I was younger the thief in the night videos maybe you've seen them but um, that, that you were doomed uh, you, you missed out on your opportunity the scriptures don't clearly say that one way or the other that you have to accept whenever you get the chance so in other words what you're saying is that a person in let's say Africa who's never heard the gospel of Christ Okay, the gospel of the church. He re- he's the one who's going to be saved. Or someone who's never heard a gospel message is the one that can be saved in the tribulation. I would actually say that there, that 
that the opportunity to repent can come at any time, whether before or after. Now, it's going to be a different um, object that, that you're looking towards. In other words, for now, we're looking towards that crucified Christ and, and we still need to repent and believe. In the kingdom, we're looking towards the kingdom, the, the king of the kingdom, and we still have to repent and believe. So, um, Well, particularly, um, I would think, particularly since there are 144,000 Jews, um, I mean, you can't expect that every Jew that lives right now has heard the gospel. But most Jews know the scriptures, at least the Old Testament. And uh, so I would say that, that they, at the very least, had they had mourned at... The, the having killed Christ, when they recognized what they did to Him, then they mourned and actually repented. Um, now I'm uh, bringing another scripture that actually doesn't apply to what I'm saying there, but, um, but I guess my short answer would be um, that, there, that, that there are people who are deluded but can actually still repent. I mean, after all, isn't that how we came to Christ? We were deluded. We were foolish in our own minds. We were darkened in our understanding. We were destined for God's wrath and enemies of Him. And yet, the Spirit came and did a work in us. I mean, that's... So I don't see how the rapture could actually change that. Um, to say, okay, that's it. It's cutting off. Now we're going to people who haven't heard yet. I mean, it very well could be. Uh, what you say, but what I'm saying is um, I don't think the Scriptures say one way or the other. Yeah, and I think there will be some several who are just like that. Um, we're actually out of time. I'd be happy to continue uh, this conversation further. I'm sorry. Uh, yep. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying that that's not the way it is. I'm just saying that you have to allow for both sides because the Scriptures don't explicitly say when Christ comes, you're gone. That's it. Yeah. Let me pray and thank you for the, the input and um, conversation. I think it's been good. Thank you, Father, that you will win through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help the response of our heart uh, to be with regard to the second coming of our Lord, that we would live holy lives, that the practical outworking would be um, loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, and that we would show forth the love that we have as a result of having been changed by the Lamb who has purchased us through His blood. We pray in His name. Amen.